Welcome to Sex, Drugs, and Enlightenment, where we open the door and take down the walls of the therapy office. Hi, I'm Oakley Ogden, a licensed professional counselor and coach with over 17 years of experience working with young adults. In this podcast, I unpack the profane to recognize how the tough stuff is the sacred stuff. Join us as we explore it all, the taboo topics and otherwise nothing is off limits. In this space of safety and love, let's work it out and learn how we can all build resilience and strength of character to make each day count as we live our best life and have fun doing it. Welcome to today's episode. Is it me or is it you? Working with chronic illness and anxiety part one. This incredible young client has done a lot of work to emancipate herself from her family system, but there's some aha moments yet to be had. Dive in with me as we uncover some of the ins and outs of chronic illness, anxiety, and its relationship to family systems. So are you coming today with a question or a specific topic to talk about? Um, yeah, so a few of the things I've considered talking about um, are, are my struggle with chronic illnesses for the past 10 years um, and continuing that, as well as, you know, possibly talking about my anxiety issues I have from just general anxiety to um, really bad social anxiety that I deal with. I also have some, you know, body image and eating things that I struggle with occasionally. I've got some mama trauma. So... <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Great. Okay. Um, Thanks for putting that all on the table so vulnerably. So often they're all interconnected, right? So (laughs) what? Nice. So what's the one with the most charge for you? Meaning what's the one that's most present for you in your day-to-day life right now? I would say right now my anxiety. I don't really deal with um, the symptoms of my chronic illness so much anymore. Um, It's more so just managing it and, you know, waiting for it to strike again if it does. And what's your chronic uh, diagnosis? Um, So I have had chronic Lyme disease and chronic, um, it's called Babesia, which is a strain of Lyme disease. So I have Mm -hmm. Lyme and Babesia. Um, since I was nine slash 10. And then um, in 2015, I found out that I had this condition called SIRS, which stands for uh, chronic inflammatory response syndrome, which is a genetic disorder I was born with, but I didn't know about it. Um, And this is where mold affects my immune system. um, And it's mold that's not toxic to, you know, a regular person. It's more just, you know, I'm affected by molds that like any kind of mold. Um, not necessarily like black mold or toxic mold. Um, and so that directly even allergenic mold. Yeah. Even so allergenic mold. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So like, you know, if I go into like an old farmhouse, like I get really sick pretty fast most of the time. And, you know, I kind of got like a good mold sniffer now, as I like to say. Um, but that kind of directly uh, battles against my Lyme disease. And that caused like a ton of neurological issues um, when I was a teenager and, really had an impact on me mentally and physically. And yeah, they both took quite the toll. So, (laughs) yeah. uh, Did your anxiety show up before this whole debacle with your health or afterwards? I asked this because chronic inflammation can actually cause anxiety. After I dealt with my Lyme disease and Epstein-Barr, I noticed a calm overcome me. The same calm I had been chasing with hours and hours of meditation. Now, it's not that meditation didn't serve me. No, meditation's incredible. It's a key to wellness, at least for me. It taught me discipline, how to work with my mind, strengthen my observer, and not take feelings and sensations of anxiety so personally, right? So nevertheless, never underestimate how interconnected the mind and the body are. Please, this is a big takeaway from this section. A final note here is that healing the trauma I had in my life also helped release me from the chronic symptoms. So there's that too. I'm seeing chronic conditions express themselves through women mostly at the moment. Again, that's just what I'm seeing, okay? So men and non-binary are not not included here. Nevertheless, the point is, is that trauma is stored in the body, 
That could be one traumatic incident. But if the body is expressing chronic inflammation through the myriad of diagnoses, such as the ones being shared today, then there might be something more chronic in the family system to look for. And if this is new information for you, I invite you to read the book, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. That's Bessel, B-E-S-S-E-L, van der Kolk, V-A-N-D-E-R-K-O-L-K. The Body Keeps the Score. Okay. Let's see what we find. Um, definitely, I've always had really bad anxiety. Like, Tell me how anxiety showed up for you as a kid. How would I know you were experiencing anxiety? How you were experiencing anxiety? Um, what would I see and what would you be thinking and feeling? Um, as a kid, when I was feeling anxious in social situations or at all, um, I feel like I would tend, from, from the little I remember, I feel like I would get kind of hyper and like, I don't know, try to kind of conform to the situation around me, like try to be like cool for lack of a better word. Like I, I kind of just have always felt like I'm not good enough. And I, when I was really little, I just felt like I was always trying to fit in with these people that didn't really like me or whatever. And then now, um, you know, as an adult, I definitely just shut down. Um, I just feel like nothing I have to say is worth saying that nobody cares that there's no point in talking. I just don't feel like very, I I don't know. I just get very insecure. Um, and I just shut down. I can't talk. There's literally like nothing in my head except for, I want to leave, like just on repeat Mm. in my brain. Um, I tend Mm. to like, you know, pick out my skin sometimes and like, uh, just get nervous and I, yeah, I just shut down. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's your relationship with your parents? And tell me a little bit about each one. How were you raised? What was the family system, uh, the organization of the family system? Mom, dad, mom, mom, no dad, mom. Just paint it for me. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I grew up with two parents. Uh, my parents are still together. Um, I have a, a pretty good relationship with both of them. Um, you know, growing up, my dad on the business. So, you know, he was pretty busy all the time. My mom was stay at home and um, took care of us. I was the youngest. My siblings were pretty older than me. So they're, you know, in like middle high school by the time I was a little kid. Um, so, you know, I definitely grew up close with my mother. Um And then I found that when I got sick, you know, she definitely stepped into like this super caring role, which I, you know, I seriously appreciate like all that her and my dad did for me during that time. And I was very, very sick. Um, How old were you when that started? The chronic illness. Uh Or um, I was nine, about to be 10 when I got um, diagnosed with Lyme. And did you get bitten by a tick at that age or did it just start to show up and you finally got tested? Yeah. So I found a tick on me and I had actually gotten Lyme disease a couple years prior, but I tested with, or I got a bullseye rash um, and I tested positive. So I was able to get treatment. Um, The second time I didn't show positive on a blood test, nor did I have the bullseye ring. So I wasn't able to receive antibiotics per the CDC guidelines. Um, So it wasn't until too late that I found out I had Lyme disease and it was a chronic condition at that point. So I had to treat it um, homeopathically. Um, sorry. Hold on one second. Oh my God. Ah, so frustrating. Okay. Thank you. Let's jump back in. And how have you treated it? Um, just let, tell me what you've done for it so far. So you said homeopathically, what else? Um, that's pretty much it. I worked with a, a homeopathic Lyme specialist and um, it was all just like Chinese herbs and Chinese medicine, um, supplements like fish oils, things like that to kind of manage the inflammation. And what were the, what were the results for you? Um, took a long time, especially when I was battling the um, chronic inflammatory response syndrome at the same time. Um, but I would say it took like a good seven years for me to not be very, very sick. Oh, God. So you were nine years old and this all started? 
yeah um I I just remember like I got bit and um I was really into horseback riding at the time that was like you know my thing and I love to do it and I remember like my knees were they look like somebody bashed them in with like baseball bats they're huge and red and swollen and we went to the children's hospital and they just told me I had rheumatoid arthritis overnight when you know no solution was found there Okay, despite the frustration I shared a few minutes ago, which I take full ownership for, I have to say that not enough is known about Lyme. I'm not alone in that opinion. So it's not the doctor's fault. It's not the CDC guidelines. We have to put more money into this research and all the rest. But let's get to what really matters. If you are suffering from Lyme or you know someone who is, I suggest the following, and here's my disclaimer. I'm obviously not a medical doctor. I did not go to medical school. However, I went through a really hard time fighting and beating Lyme myself, so I promised to share some of the tricks, and that's all I'm sharing. Only do this if this resonates with you or if it's inside your means. So I got tested for Epstein-Barr. EB is a virus that seems to be running side by side with Lyme. I treated my EB directly with IV therapy. I'll say more. This was specific cocktails that we sent directly into my bloodstream through medical intravenous therapy, focused primarily, this is the key, on building my immune system. Once my immune system was strong, and this took me a year because I came from a pretty wrecked place, which you can find out more about in my first episode if you're interested, My immune system started to take care of the Lyme symptoms. Holy cow. This is true. Again, this is my personal journey. I'm not saying it'll work for you, but perhaps worth doing a little research or writing me directly through Instagram if you choose. Okay, let's get back in. It definitely affected me greatly physically and mentally for sure. Have you told this story before or are you telling me the fir- for the first time? Um, I've definitely told other people, definitely not on a public level, like on a podcast or anything. Um, but I definitely try to share my story as much as possible because I know there's a lot of people that um, can't find treatment for their chronic illness or don't know how to deal with it. And it's really unfortunate that there's not a lot of support out there. That's, I absolutely agree. Um I had a question for you. Um, have you told a therapist this before? Yes, <laughs> I have. Um, and that also plays into my anxiety. Um, I, I did have a therapist in high school and um, she essentially gaslighted me into I was making it all up to get out of going to school. Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. I, yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's discuss gaslighting. First of all, it's defined as a form of psychological manipulation in which the abuser attempts to sow self-doubt and confusion in their victim's mind. Typically, gaslighters are seeking to gain power and control over the other person by distorting reality and forcing them to question their own judgment and intuition. What's important here, listener, is that one of its defining qualities is that gaslighting is being done intentionally, on purpose, which also suggests consciously. Now, I've noticed that we're using this term way more casually these days, basically to define the experience of having our feelings and experiences denied. So let's remember that the one who's gaslighting you might not be doing it consciously. They're just in their own shit. Nevertheless, it's a real experience to have your feelings denied, and it has very real consequences. Very real. So let's turn real quick to Mel Robbins, one of my favorite motivational speakers. If you don't know her, check her out. She gives us some great examples about what scenarios might be indicative of gaslighting. I'm going to read both comments from the party. So if I say something to my gaslighter, my person, and I say, you know, please don't make negative comments about my body. You see, I'm drawing a boundary. And the person says, I'm just kidding. 
why are you so sensitive? You are being gaslit. That's an example. Here's another. It makes me uncomfortable that you still talk to your ex. Doesn't mean anything. You're crazy. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I feel like you don't appreciate me. You're imagining that. I do stuff for you all the time. That's a sign of being gaslit. You see, your feelings are being denied. Got it? Are you almost home? I thought we had a date night planned. Uh, I never said that. Whoa. Okay. So if you're coming up against sentences like, you sound so crazy. You're imagining things. It was just a joke that didn't happen. Don't get upset over nothing. Oh my God, here we go again. Or one of the classics, you are so sensitive. That, my darling, is gaslighting. So all that to say that I'm not going to comment necessarily on the change in how we used to use the word and how we use it today, that's less important. What's most important is that your gaslighter is in a deep emotional space of immaturity and wounding and probably learned behavior, all right? However, if you feel like you're being gaslit, it's very important to start validating your own experiences, adjusting expectations of the other person that they have the capacity to hear you and understand you. That's them. It's not you. Got it? They've got stuff going on. Your experience is real. It's okay. Start journaling about it. Find someone to talk to about it. As my client here says, find a great therapist and learn to set some boundaries. Let's jump back in. Things like that happened a lot, you know, with doctors and mental health professionals and teachers and, you know, everybody just thinking like, I'm this young person who looks fine, you know, like what, what could possibly be wrong? And they just didn't believe me. Um, and that definitely like affected my self-esteem, made me question myself. Bingo! This is the result of having your feelings and experiences being invalidated by those around you. (sighs) And the good news is that regaining self-esteem and reconnecting with your truth is totally doable. And I did actually, I was very fortunate to find a really great um, therapist like when I was 16, 17, and she was really awesome. So I'm glad I had her to mm-hmm. get me through the the last half of it. <laughs> How was she awesome? Because she started to validate your experience? Yeah, she definitely just heard me out. She never questioned me. And here we are, full circle. A lot of my clients' emotional healing has come through feeling heard. I often tell parents this one. Your kid doesn't want your incredible advice. They want to feel heard by you. When someone feels like another person hears them and sees them, right? It's validating. It validates our feelings, which in turn teaches us to trust ourselves. Ultimately, knowing that a young person trusts their instincts, their intuition, can assess a scene or experience is the best freaking outcome a parent could hope for. So offering deep listening to your kid enhances their ability to assess the world around them and teaches them how to listen and trust their own feelings, which is critical in development. And I'm just going to say it, a better world. So tell me about the parallel journey of anxiety that seemed to be part of um, this experience. And I know anxiety, you said, came before this, but tell me how anxiety was showing up for you throughout these years, nine all the way. You said seven years from nine years old, and then that was halfway through. So yeah, so like symptomatic wise, Mm. and I would say it wasn't until I was probably like, 17 that I really got relief from my symptoms. Um, now it's just like an occasional, you know, ankle rolls and it hurts or something, (laughs) headaches, you know, things like that once in a while. Um, so in terms of anxiety with my chronic illnesses, um, do you mean like how I represented my anxiety or 
Whatever it means to you, how did anxiety present itself through those years? Um, you know, I, I vividly remember high school, especially, um, I definitely would just have like these breakdowns, um, almost every morning before school. Cause I just dreaded it. I had a really hard time walking around school. Um, again, dealing with like the nurses, not believing me and not getting what I needed from, uh, the staff to get through my day. Um, I would often just like, you know, shake panic, run to the bathroom, hyperventilate, um, try to just go home and just like get out of it. Um, I did end up taking like two months of medical leave from high school at one point. Cause I just, I could not do it. Um, but definitely just very much kind of similarly to how I have anxiety now is just shutting down, um, and just kind of having this internal panic is the best way I know how to describe it. It's just this like isolated feeling like an earthquake inside my head. That's kind of what it feels like. Just ah, panic all at once. Yeah. Is it the same now as it was when you were younger or has it improved at all? Um, it's hard to say. I, I feel like I've honestly blocked out like so much of my childhood um, just because of all this trauma mm. I've, I've gone through. Um, I would say I represent it differently. I'm, I'm not as expressive of my anxiety. Like you might not even know I'm having an anxiety attack. Um, you know, when I was a little kid, I think I may have just acted out more um, by like, you know, trying to act silly and, you know, getting kind of hyper and out of control. And now it's just more like, I just shut down and I just isolate. How are your relationships today? I want you to know why I'm asking this. Because how our relationships are can tell us a lot about how we're really doing. And where they aren't what we want them to be is where we often find the source of hard-to-get-to feelings and experiences. So I'm shifting gears here as I gather more information from my client. I feel like all of my relationships are actually really good. Um, I, I had some tough relationships with my mom and I still do um, at times. Um, but, you know, I've, I've moved out with my partner in the past year and I feel like my, my relationship with my mom has improved a little bit. Um, my relationship with myself has improved so much and from getting out of my parents' house um, and my relationship with my partner is amazing. And I definitely just feel like I can be myself in my own space now. And I just feel, you know, comforted and yeah. And we've arrived. She's better now that she's out of the house. She can finally be herself, which means when she's in the house, that's not happening, which means something is not healed between my client and either one of her parents or both. And I think you're getting an idea of where we might be going. Tell me a little bit about your relationship with your mother. Tell me about the history of it. When you were younger, how did it evolve? What's the what's there? Because you've referred mm -hmm. to that and you've referred to trauma several times. Are you referring to something outside of uh, your experience um, of practitioners and providers regarding your Lyme disease or is there more? Um, in terms of trauma, I would say it's, you know, there's that medical clinical aspect you just mentioned with like doctors and stuff. Um, a lot of it's also just what I went through, like the, the fear of ever being that sick again, um, you know, ever being that mm -hmm. depressed again, ever hurting myself that much again. Like it was, um, a very traumatic time in my brain. Um, Were you self-harming? Do you feel comfortable sharing what that looked like for you? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, I, I used to cut myself. Um, this was when mm -hmm. I was 13, which is a tough year for anybody if you're dealing with a chronic illness or not. Um, so, you know, I was going through a lot of changes. We had just moved. I was at a new school. Um, I didn't have any friends anymore. I was really sick. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I just... I, I was also dealing with so much neurological sickness from the Lyme disease. Um, I was like, what, what, what showed things. up? <laughs> um, seeing yeah, things, mean, hallucinations. Things. Um, yeah. Hearing things. And we found out that was a symptom of like the mold disease later on. Um, but at the time mm -hmm. I felt like I was insane, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, no, I, I definitely struggled. I definitely had a lot of periods where, you know, I didn't really want to be here anymore. Um, 
You felt so, suicidal. Oh, definitely. I was very, um, I didn't really act on it. I think I was too afraid to, which I'm thankful for now. Um, but yeah, I definitely expressed that like anger towards myself, towards the world, ter- towards my situation through self-harm. Mm, so, so you turned it in on yourself, all of that yeah, upset. I definitely was just, I hated my gut. My guts, sorry, my voice is dry. I literally hated my guts. Like I just was so angry at myself. Hey, I'm going to invite you to take a deep breath right now. This is some territory that can feel upsetting and triggering. So inhale with me. Ready? And exhale. One more inhale. And exhale. Good. So the breath is one of our number one ways to self-regulate our nervous systems when we're activated. So here's the thing. When no one is validating our experience, we often get left feeling nuts, left to question ourselves and not understanding or knowing what to do with this energy. We tell ourselves, like, it must be us, right? It must be me. I'm the problem because everyone's telling me there's nothing wrong. But this energy needs to move. That's the nature of energy. And we can do this through healthy means like all forms of exercise, right? Dance, martial art. We can do it through journaling and writing. We can do it through music making and art. However, when we don't have these outlets as habits, we can turn all of our feelings onto ourselves. And let's just be honest, okay? When we have these habits established, we can still turn this energy onto ourselves. So that's one reason we might self-harm, but it's not black and white. Some of us might feel so numb that the pain from cutting is a relief. It also allows us to feel something anything in a world that we have totally shut down to. So if you know someone who's self-harming, meaning like actively cutting, or you are this person, just know that there are other ways to get through the hard times. Truly, I'm not making this up, I promise. And there's some extraordinary practitioners out there who are so ready to support you and help you. You can reach these folks, I'm going to give you two places, through betterhelp.com or through psychologytoday.com. So that's BetterHelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com, or Psychology Today, P-S-Y-C-H-O-L-O-G-Y Today, T-O-D-A-Y. Did I spell psychology right? So that's just to name two places. And look, if you identify with this portion here, you know, if you know, you know. And I know it's complicated. And if you don't know anyone who's ever self-harm or if this is just not you, then just open your heart and send some love to the pain and suffering of others. Your love matters and really makes a difference. It makes a difference whether you understand how it makes a difference or not. And no matter which camp you fall into here, you matter. And you're gorgeous and you're perfect, and you deserve to live in alignment with your true self. Okay? Okay. I felt like I deserved it. Um, I wasn't necessarily trying to kill myself. I was just trying to, like, punish myself in a way. Like, you deserve this is kind of just what I thought. Yeah. And why did you deserve this? I just felt like, you know, my body can't work right and you know just I'm weird I felt ugly at the time I was so insecure just all those normal like you know adolescent thoughts on top of being really really sick um just this you know cluster of anxiety and depression and just made me feel like feel pretty worthless and I just Mm -hmm. wasn't worthy of being here or treating myself right Mm. I understand how that convergence of time must have felt so hard. It was. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, because you have so much going on socially and hormonally and all the thoughts of where I belong, who am I really, what am I doing, what do I like, who are my people, 
all of that, right? And then you have a body that isn't processing all that emotional content because it's so inflamed that it's in survival mode. So you can't move any of those thoughts or feelings through your physicality. Yeah, that's that's a perfect description of what I was feeling. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, you're amazing that you have gotten (laughs) through this. Yeah, I mean, I don't like to do my own horn or anything, but, you know, looking back, um, not to sound like cocky or whatever, but I, I definitely am proud that I, I did conquer that and that, you know, I am still here. Yeah! Pretty inspiring, y'all. Well, there's a difference between being cocky and owning your decision to continue to show up to life and be here today. Mm-hmm. Right. And that is that is the very crux of building confidence. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> That's very different than being arrogant. Yeah, I guess right? I'm not cocky. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you'll give me that. Okay, cool. Thank you. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. So let's come back then to the role and relationship between you and your mother. What did it look like during that time? Um, during that time, I definitely leaned on my mom a lot. Um, you know, we had just moved and I didn't know anybody. And um, because of how sick I was, we decided just to do homeschool um, for a year. Um, and, you know, a lot of that involved like not actually learning anything. And we would go on like little shopping trips and just like go on little day trips just to kind of make me feel better. Um so, you know, I, I definitely was very, very, very reliant on my mom for emotional support during that time. Um, as I got better, I would say when I was 17, 18, um, at 17, I got my first job. So, you know, I was becoming independent. Um, 18, me and my partner started dating. So, you know, I had my first relationship and wanted to hang out with him and everything. Um, that's kind of when I started feeling more of a strain on our relationship because I think she was losing control. Um, and I don't think she liked that. Um, that's, that's a whole other story for another time in terms of controlling and and my family history. Um, (laughs) well, let's pause there for a moment, love, because that, that might actually be the story because anxiety (laughs) can often come from feeling like you don't have a sense of self or agency or no, you're not allowed to know who you are. You don't know who you are. You don't know where you belong and you don't know how to self-regulate because Mm -hmm. of reliance, right? Over-dependency. Something you said really caught my ear earlier when you said that the more sick I was, the more my mom showed up, something to that effect. You're, you're nodding your head. Correct me. Put me on track. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's not wrong. I, I would say um, not that she didn't care for me before that, but I think she she had a purpose taking care of me and she felt important. And, you know, she could go around and, you know, tell everybody like, oh, my daughter is so sick. And we're, you know, she she was taking a lot of this sympathy coming towards my way, if that makes sense. Um, you know, and, and not to dismiss any feeling she was having during that time. I know that's really stressful for a parent to watch her child, like, you know, cut herself and be depressed and be really sick. Like I totally get that. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of that, it it made her feel good to be able to take care of somebody and have, have this very important role. Um, you know, I couldn't leave. I couldn't go anywhere. Like I was really all she had. Um, or really, sorry, she was really all that I had. Um, so, you know, that, that just made her feel very important. First of all, incredible level of awareness. Second, there are no accidents in therapy. My client just said, I was all she had. That's not an accident. So when a kid is sick, a mother will often, or the primary caregiver, right, will often give everything they have to supporting that kid getting well. I've seen it so many times. But what can happen in this well-intentioned process is that the role of the caretaker becomes their very identity. 
which leads to wild levels of codependency. So if you're sick, then I have a role. That's what the caretaker's saying, right? If you're sick, I have a role. I have an identity. And this can be really hard to dismantle. However, given the determination of my client here to live her best life, helping her in her emancipation won't be hard. I don't think anyway. Looking back, it was good. It was nice to have somebody to, you know, do things with during the day and to be cared for. Um, and What was you know, the like tension a- in it? Why are you feeling better being away from it then? Um, definitely, you know, growing up, there were a lot of things that I see now that I'm an adult um, that were not great to be around. Um, Tell me mom- about those. My mom has her own insecurities, and I think that really reflected on me as well as my siblings growing up. Um, You know, I think that's why I've dealt with so many body image issues, like sitting around the dinner table and, oh, I shouldn't eat that, or, oh, gosh, look at me, I'm so fat. You know, like these were things my mom said often, um, shaming herself and her body and and constantly looking for approval from others. And then... And... was it made up? Was she overweight in an unhealthy, dangerous way? Or she was just having body image uh, issues? She was just having body image issues. And, you know, this is definitely a, a generational cycle. There's a specific work I offer that you will hear me talk about again and again, and I'll bring it up soon. It's from the school of thought I've studied inside of for decades, and we call it Give Back, Take Back. We'll visit the entire intervention or the use of it in part two of this episode, so stay tuned. But it's important to mention here that all of us come from a lineage, a set pattern of behaviors, neuroses, ailments that can get passed down. We know this on some level. But the emphasis on emotional inheritance has come into focus lately. How do things get passed down? DNA, yep, and observation, mimicking what we see. This informs a ton of our development. If we do nothing about the stuff that could use healing, refinement, or improvement, and we have a child, boom, the behavior or thought pattern lives on in yet another generation. How much of what we think and feel actually belongs to our parents? What they think and feel about themselves. What can we give back? And in turn, what can we take back that is love-based, that belongs to our true nature or essence or our potential, however you want to say it? Again, we'll go over all of this in part two. And if you're interested in this work, sign up for my newsletter through my website, oakleyogden.com, and you will be made abreast of my weekend intensives where I offer this work. You know, my grandmother called me anorexic one time because I was too nervous to eat because I was at a horse show and I was like eight years old, you know, who wouldn't be nervous? Um, But, you know, like that really sat with me and it always does. Um, So I can't even Hmm. imagine what kind of things she said to my mother growing up about her body Uh, and and eating. uh So. It's definitely a generational thing for sure. Great insight. Okay. So tell me more because this sounds like, and you tell me if this feels like we're getting close, this sounds like you're managing not only your own experience, but some generational um, storylines and narratives that have been passed on. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, from both sides of my family, there's anxiety and depression and stress and body image. Um, So I've definitely taken, you know, all of those things from both sides of my family and inherited them gladly. And inherited them (laughs) gladly. Uh, I don't know if you've inherited them gladly. Maybe not gladly. Maybe not. Maybe not. Not So we've got anxiety, depression, and body image issues, yeah? Yeah. (laughs) I'm writing it down for our listener right now. Um, 
for them to know what I'm doing here. Is there anything else that you want to tell me before I make a suggestion? I won't get into the specifics, but um, things like that, um, control over my body or um, money. How like, does she control your body? Um, well, she told me that the HPV vaccine is only for promiscuous people and that I shouldn't get it. Um, so I went to Planned Parenthood and got it anyways. Yeah! <laughs> like That's the kind of thing that we're dealing with. It's a lot of slut shaming. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I'm, I'm having a, mo- I'm taking a moment here with, with you <laughs> with this information. Yeah. Um, uh, just for our listener, the HPV vaccine is not for promiscuous people. It's for <laughs> everyone who chooses to be sexually active. For my lady listener, let's have a chat about women's health right now. And If you identify differently than a lady and you still have a cervix, this is also for you. HPV, human papillomavirus. The amount of tears shed over this virus are countless. But there's no reason to cry, my love. Let's put all the fear to rest and all the stigma and let's just clean up the confusion. So number one... Women's health is not funded the way it should be. So the following facts are not widely known, even though they should be. And obviously you can hear my bias and my opinion here. But nevertheless, let's just dive in, okay? So HPV is like the common cold of sex. It's easily transmitted without condoms. And most of the time the body will fight it off. So if you have a cold and you're sniffling and sneezing and you full on open mouth, tongue, breath, kiss your partner for a long time, they are most likely going to get the cold. And you will both most likely get over that cold in a week or so. HPV is like that, but it moves way more slowly, so it can take months to clear. And if you're not using condoms, you can pass it back and forth as one person gets over it before the other person. So there are some deeper facts that I want to go over. So just buckle in, kick back while we do a little HPV educational segment. So number one. It's the most common sexually transmitted infection in the U.S. 75 to 80 percent of Americans will be infected with HPV during their lifetime. Nearly half of women, right, age 20 to 24, will test positive for HPV. That's how common it is. There are a hundred subtypes of HPV. Some of these can cause genital warts. Some cause precancerous and cancerous changes in the cervix, but most have no health effects whatsoever. And doctors, for the most part, are totally discovering which strain causes what. So when you go get tested, you will get your results and it will say you have tested for high-risk HPV strain 16 or 18. That's the kind of stuff that causes cancer. But if you keep getting your annual exam at the gynecologist, they can track and monitor this and even remove it right? There's really effective treatments, let's say that. There are other strains too. Another high risk is 31 and 45, also cancerous. And then the lower strains is 6 and 11, which can cause genital warts. Then there are low risk strains that your body clears like a cold. So while words like genital warts and cancer can be terrifying and horrifying and leave you sobbing in your car after your gyno appointment, just know that all of this stuff can be cleared by the body and treated. All right. Okay. Let's uh, keep going with some facts, right? So I guess this is what's really important here too. Okay. So the diagnosis of genital warts is made by visualizing the warts on the skin of the vulva. These are raised bumps with an irregular surface. They're darker than the surrounding skin and may be slightly itchy, but are not painful. 
HPV that causes precancerous changes in the cervix are also called high-risk HPV, and those are detected by pap smears, which is why we go to the gynecologist yearly, whether we have the vaccination or not, whether we're sexually active or not, to get our annual pap. There are no blood tests for HPV. There is no way for a man to know if he is a carrier of HPV unless he has the subtype that causes genital warts. He cannot go to his doctor to be checked for this infection, so you can't blame your partner for being dishonest about having it, okay? They just don't know if they have it. So if you're diagnosed with HPV, there's no way to know how long you've had it or who you got it from unless you've only had one sexual partner. If HPV is found on your pap, it's most likely from an exposure within the last two years. Get that? Get that timing? Two years. But that cannot be determined definitively. So you can have been exposed the very first time you've had sex. And condoms don't completely prevent the spread because the virus can pass through the skin that's not covered by the condom, right? HPV, other than subtypes that cause genital warts, do not have any symptoms, it does not cause pain, discharge, itching, or odor. The only way to know you have had it is from your pap. If you find out that you have HPV, most likely your current sexual partner has it too. That's the big thing. So while HPV can cause penile and anal cancer in men, these cancers are extremely rare, only about 2,000 cases per year in the U.S. And the vast majority of men with HPV are asymptomatic. And one more thing uh, where men can suffer from HPV is oral sex. Because it moves so slowly as a symptom, usually the cancer doesn't show up until much later in life, but throat cancer from oral sex is possible. I have not heard of many cases in women. I'm sure there are cases, but I've heard it mostly through men, HPV going into the throat and causing cancer of the throat. So that's another reason to figure out what kind of strains you're carrying and monitor it to see when your body has cleared it. There is no way to prevent the spread of HPV completely. However, getting vaccinated, using condoms, and limiting the number of sexual partners can decrease your risk, obviously, all of which are up to you. Okay? So in summary, there's no cure for existing HPV per se, but for most people, it would be cleared by their own immune system, and there are treatments available for the symptoms it can cause. So side note, I have had so many girlfriends, almost all, get diagnosed with HPV on some form, the kind that doesn't have any symptoms, the kind that has cancerous symptoms. Everybody is totally healthy today. So that just, you know, a little ease, okay? You can also get HPV vaccine to protect yourself against new infections, but that's totally up to you. I'm not promoting a vaccine here. I'm just saying that it's out there, okay? One thing to note about the vaccine, I do believe the efficacy of the vax goes down after the age of 26, so you should check that out with your OBGYN. So, well, it can come as a shock to be testing positive for HPV, just know, my darling one, it is okay, you are okay, it will be okay. And back to our session. Please continue. Um, yeah, so that's just like one small example. Mm -hmm. So what, what other ways does she show control over you? Yeah. So, um, one that comes to mind is, uh, last year, my partner and I found a house that we want to place an offer on. We're really excited about it at the time. My mom was away. Um, so I, I FaceTimed her and to tell her about it, I was so excited. Um, my dad was like, yeah, it looks great. Like he was super you know, excited for us too. Um, I call my mom and she goes, so you're really going to move in with your boyfriend that you date three days a week because he, you know, he has a job wow. and Got that it. just sent me, you know, like this is a person that mm. at the time I'd been with for four years, three and a half mm -hmm. years, whatever, you know, I, I really loved, mm -hmm. I, I want to spend my life with, they know this. Um, and it just felt like such a slap in the face. This is a good example of gaslighting and shaming. 
I've definitely really learned to set my boundaries um, as best as I can and um, let go of control myself. Um, I've definitely inherited some of that control. Like at first, I would be so obsessive about like cleaning and why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that with my partner? And then I realized it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. Like there's there's no point in, you know, picking a fight because the floor has five pieces of dog hair on it. Like it, it doesn't matter at the end of the day. And that shouldn't change the way I feel about my partner. Um, so I, I really let that go. And, you know, it's still something I deal with sometimes, but letting that go. Um, and in terms of body image stuff, I, I remember when I lived at my parents' house, because my mom, you know, like every day I'd be like, oh, I, I lost half a pound or I lost a pound. Like this would be like a one to two day occurrence almost every day of her mm-hmm. announcing like her weight progress. And, you know, I would weigh myself two to three times a day. I would be insecure about my weight. And, you know, I don't do that anymore. Like I haven't weighed myself in months and it feels really, mm-hmm. really good to not obsess about that. I eat what I want, when I want, what feels right for my body. And it feels good to have earned that control back. Good for you. Great, great work. This young woman has made some really conscious choices to change her behavior. It's really actually remarkable the amount of awareness she has and how she's prioritized connection with her boyfriend over the old patterns she learned from her mom. As of now, I have all the information I need to offer an intervention that will help clear up some of the deeper emotional angst that has been passed down the lineage line to her. So tune in for our next episode when we get after the tough stuff and find out that an exhale is waiting on the other side. Thanks for joining us as we walked through some sacred ground today. What an amazing offering from this young client. Join me for part two, where we get to work on clearing some of this inherited patterning. And in the meantime, remember that awareness can be the most uncomfortable part of the work sometimes. But you, my darling, have what it takes. And now, if being a guest is something that calls to you, head over to oakleyogden.com. That's O-A-K-L-E-Y-O-G-D-E-N.com and click on podcast where you will fill out an interest form and we will take a look. And until next time, remember, yes, you can get through it. Whatever you are facing is the very thing that's there to show you your greatness.